0: next chapter podcasts next chapter podcasts
1: welcome to how i got greenlit i'm alex collegian i'm ryan gibson and we're here today with writer director actor ollie blackburn (laughs)
0: This is what I like to call the, this is like, we're jump scaring Ollie. We're just literally jumping right into the show. Like no prep. There's
1: no green room.
0: There's No green room. Hey, welcome to the show. Like you, 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 the car drops you off. You walk in through the backstage door. You think you're backstage. You just just actually walk right in front of the cameras. Oh, hello. Oh, hello. Yeah, you exactly been, right. You've yeah, this, wasn't
2: the, this wasn't what our attorneys agreed.
0: No, uh, po- pod, <laughs> pod, <laughs> po- podcast ambush. As if a podcast <laughs> could ambush anybody. <laughs> uh, so sure. clear, clear your water bottles, boys. so, so you found
2: out I was an actor. Did you? Did you have the? Well, uh, the I. You know, I, <laughs> <laughs> I have not. <laughs> uh, but we try
1: to list it all. We try to- <laughs> We did to you uh <laughs> was did he play
0: the guy handing the crack pipe to the girls or he, no he did not that was not <laughs> no, his. no i I, uh, only, I only played drug he dealers. made the crack made I the crack. was
2: briefly a child actor you were oh a, wow I was uh in a movie, not just a child actor but in, in a movie that that won the oscar that
0: year shut thing. shut
2: yeah. up yeah to to uh, tell
0: more ollie
2: and I was all teed up as going to be the next you know, River Phoenix. And then and then my mother put
1: the brakes on. She's like, I don't want you dead. <laughs> good, good place to start, bad
0: bad place to end. <laughs> rest rest in peace, River Phoenix. Yeah. Uh, uh, by the way, one of the best Indiana Joneses we've ever had. Just just saying. That's right. If I, if I had my choice. What well, could have been? Ollie, so you can't just drop that knowledge yeah. and then not expound. So how old are you at the time? I was nine. You're nine years old, you're living where at the time?
2: I'm living in London in north London
0: in in foggy London town, and yeah. you're it's a did you say it was a short?
2: Yeah, it was a short film called a Shocking Accident."
0: Was this your first acting experience or
2: it was um i I played a very young Rupert Everett, a nine year old Rupert Everett
0: for everyone who doesn't know who Rupert Everett is, Alex.
1: He was the dreamiest actor of the last 30 years. That's all.
2: <laughs> he was. And he was famous for a film called Another Country, amongst many others. So I played a very, I played a nine year old Rupert Everett during his dreamboat period.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <And> <laughs> Jeez. I was not a dreamboat. <laughs> the star moment in the film is a shot of my knobbly knees walking down a school corridor
0: <laughs> for best knees.
1: A- the the
2: damn film went on to win an Oscar, and this was in 1982. Where do you keep your Oscar? You know, I, <laughs> I, keep, <laughs> ask, I keep asking the producers, but they will not send it to me. The the, fact, no, you, you say pay, I you keep it in the
1: producer's them. house.
2: In <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> the exactly, yeah, yeah, for safekeeping. Yeah.
1: So was that your entree to film? Like, were you on that set? Like, wow, I could. What, what's going on? Oh, yeah, on here? that's a great yeah. question.
2: It was so so they originally were trying to cast all these professional child actors for this role and they couldn't find anyone who looked like Rupert. So they they went to schools and they rocked up at my school and and they hired me. And I may have looked a little bit like Rupert, but I I was not a trained actor at all. And um, there was a trained actor. I, I played a kid at a boarding school who learns that his father's died. And there was this other kid acting next to me who was trained, who I think was up for the role, He was blonde, so he he just didn't you know he didn't look anything like Rupert. And I remember him looking at me. I remember us doing a scene on the grass, and he was just like, "What?" I remember the look in this kid's eyes was like, "What are you doing?" (laughs) 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 You know, I should be doing this, not you. Right? How dare you? (laughs) So uh... so I did that, and then I got put up for some other roles as a child actor. And
0: your mom said,
2: and my mom was like, "Yeah," pulled the rug, and she was like, "You're going to study." You're gonna study for your exams to the big school, and that was the end of my acting career.
0: Did you like run to your bedroom and throw your covers over your head and say, "You know, Mom, you took away my dreams"? Or <laughs> were you like, "Were you okay with that?" Because not only is Rupert not only is Rupert Everett a handsome man, but I I don't have pictures of you when you were nine, but you're a handsome guy yourself. So. <laughs>
2: Oh, you're too good to
0: me. (laughs) Well, hey, hey man. If this podcast. Are you grooming me? Is this a grooming podcast? If this podcast can do anything, it's here to build people up. (laughs) Make everybody feel good.
2: You know, and we're going to get into this, but, you know, you feel. We're going to get into why I wanted to be a director. You know, you feel if you're good at something. And I, I think I had a sixth sense that whatever my delusions were, I just wasn't good enough to be an actor. I think even the nine-year-old Ollie figured that out. Mm. Mm. It's hard. It's hard. And it's such, you know, working with actors I do now, I, I look at them and I'm just like, you are a genius. I could not even, you know, the thing that breaks, the thing I, that terrifies me most from friends is if I ever get the call from a friend and they go, Ollie, fantastic news. I've given everything up. I'm going to become an actor. I'm going to live my life dream. Mm. And it's just like, if you, <laughs> you seen what an actor has to go through? Have you seen how talented some of those people are out there and they're not getting the jobs? Right. I mean, you have to really, really want it and be good.
0: It's a suspension of disbelief and belief. It's a, you yes. have to, it's not just being, look, here's the thing. Like a professional athlete in any sport, you get to a point, Probably in your teens, even nowadays in, in the States before this, I'm sure probably around the world now, just the way to, uh, child kids sports or pre-professional um, sports leagues are these days of developing young talent to go into to university or college or whatever, you know, you can compare yourself to other athletes and be like, uh, I'm not going to make it. Like, yeah. And, and just, I, I, I wasn't given either. I wasn't given enough God given talent or I didn't train hard enough. Whatever the case may be, you can see other people who are going to be the, you know, 0.1% that are going to make it to being a professional athlete. So right. in acting, there's really, I think because you have to suspend your belief in, am I going to make it or not make it? I think it becomes very hard to compare yourself to other pe- other actors because you, you just, you can't really take that in. It's not like there's stats on it. I think if you're the, if you're an actor who's going to make it and they all want to, I think a lot, all, everyone wants to make it in some way. Nah, You're not, you can't, you can't say, oh, he, you know, there are people. Oh yeah. He's better than me. And really deep down, you're like, I'm, I, I'm, I can act circles around that person. I, I really, I just don't know how. I don't know how you gauge yourself. I don't know how because you have to have this overwhelming sense of confidence,
1: or a giant gaping hole of need,
0: or both. <laughs> Probably a combo platter. The, it's definitely the combo platter. So I don't know. I mean, you if you're gonna do it, there is actors on all levels, and it's really hard to gauge if you're gonna make it or not. But what you say, Ali, is true. Is like. The people who are even really good, there's not jobs being handed out all the time for that stuff.
2: Every actor, there's a different style for every actor. And part of directing is is if you love actors, which I do, is kind of, you know, absorbing their rhythms and doing your best to make them as free as possible on the set. Because that's what gets a great performance. But to get there, you know, to be a great actor, you have to have this thing where you can open yourself out and you can just you know, absorb these other emotions and not think about it. And that's a really incredible skill. Uh, you know, I've taken acting classes. I think as a direct, uh, my advice to any director would be take acting classes, understand what it is that you're asking an actor to do. Understand when you say to an actor, be angry, why that's such a dumb, bogus thing to say, because that's, you know, you've got to understand how, you know, there are smarter ways to get them to that place. Because what they're doing is they're receiving things in the air and they're, and they're taking it and then they're, they're creating it into a new personality. And that skill is just an incredible skill. When you have the privilege, like, you know, a director does to see it happen on set in front of a camera, it's rolling and an actor's really going out there. It's just astonishing. And, and I hate to say it, not everyone can do that. You know, it's a very, you know, it's like not everyone can play the saxophone like Miles Davis, or, you know, not everyone can be an athlete like Tom Brady. It's just, and you have to sort of be honest with yourself about that.
0: I always, I always like, or not. Hold on, on. or not. (laughs) not. I always like to say, no one could race a car like Miles Davis. That's what I like.
1: (laughs) Not to be that guy, but Miles Davis played the trumpet. Oh. He did. That's what,
0: it, yeah. But
2: well, I'm sure he played pretty good saxophone
0: too. <laughs> yeah, no one can drive a car like Stevie Wonder. He could race the wheels off of a car. I
1: tell you. <laughs> an anyway, episode. yeah, I mean, but but that's we keep trying to, you know, our selfish reason to to start this was to really try to find the answer. You know, like how did you succeed? How are you good at your craft? You know, and there is an equal dose of self-confidence. You have to. You have to get out of bed. You have to believe. There's there's constant rejection pretty much in every single job. I mean, I, I don't know a lot of script supervisors, but maybe they go up for the big ones and they have to settle for the indies. I don't know. But in terms of like writers, directors, producers, actors, it's really competitive and probably 90% no for your career, no matter who you are. And so you have to have self confidence at least enough to be like, well, I'm as good as those jerks, you know, or as crazy as I'm the best that ever lived. But whatever gets you going. Oh, or
0: I can't wait till those older people die so I can take their jobs. That one works too. That's the Well, we
1: were part. we were also saying there's a subcategory which is I'll show them. Oh, right. yeah! Like vengeance,
2: the spite, Venge- spite, to, vengeance. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Like vengeance is a, is a dish best served at the Oscars, right? So, oh,
2: well, yeah. I, I mean, look, all of those are factors, and I'd be lying if I said that I hadn't felt all of those at some point. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think if you if you really want to do it, but more importantly, if you really want to be great at it, and to be great at it whether you're an or you're a director, or you're a trumpet player. You just need to have that passion to believe that this is what you're doing. You couldn't be doing anything else, and that that you're you're giving something to the world. Um, you know, you do have to believe that, even if you're deluded. And for that, you need to be really emotionally connected. You need to be in love with it. And I think you know, mm. everyone's starting point comes from a place of I just fell in love with this. You know, when I was I was thirteen. Uh, you know, I was an awkward kid, as I'm sure a lot of your guests were, as a lot of artists <laughs> were. Uh, I found it easier to connect with the world whoa, in whoa. a darkened You're room. Taking, <laughs> taking, shots. <laughs> You're taking shots, at our past guests. Easy, you <laughs> Well, or at us. Look, I wasn't on the field. I wasn't on the field playing. You know, captaining the soccer team. Uh, you know, that wasn't right. Me. Right. Right. Uh, I'm clinically malcoordinated. I was the guy who had the balls hitting his head, you know. <laughs> clinically,
0: clinically malcoordinated. Yeah. is a I'm very British
1: brilliant. way to put it. Yeah.
2: I am dyspraxic. I literally don't know my left from my right. <laughs> I can't use
1: my arms good. <laughs> Me can't kick.
2: Um, so that meant that, you know, my safe space was, uh, was watching movies. And, um, and they made me feel really incredible. You know, watching a spaghetti for a few dollars more for the first time blew my mind when I was, you know, 12 years old. And I loved it. And it made me, you know, there's this thing that, that, that movies are the world, but just a bit better. You know, you're showing the world but a little bit better than it is. Everyone, you know, the actors look better. It's shh the sunlight looks better, there's music on top, which you don't normally get when you're walking down to the shop to get some chips. And it was that thing of like seeing the world a bit better, but also that that kind of fusion of pure emotion and art and sexiness and incredible acting and storytelling just made me think I'd much rather stay here in this room watching this than go outside and have a football game. Tomorrow.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I think that that to further to what you're saying, I, I do believe that people come here. I think it was Mel Brooks, and he said uh, it, it was a nice feeling when I started working and collaborating with people and seeing we're all lost, like malcontents <laughs> and we found we all came here for the same reason, and we're finding each other, and this is our community. Is, right. is this that we all left that other right. place? Searching for the answer, and maybe this is what we found: was our our weird, you know, island of mis- misfit toys that all like gravitate to this business.
0: I will say some of the le- some of the emails and stuff that I've gotten about this show, and we've touched on this before.
1: And never shared with me. Never shared. <laughs> it's all mine. It's all mine. It's, it's all in the archive. Hey, man, it's time
2: to work things out, guys. Hey man, it's. A- <laughs> Hey, I think hey, there's a dialogue that maybe needs to
0: happen yeah. here. <laughs> hey, 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 we were just Fan covering letters. How, how rough... How, Are they from lady prisons? <laughs> how rough. What did you get? Yeah. We were all talking about how rough this business is. So get yeah. hey, your own ego boost there, Collegian. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, they the people say that uh, we've touched on several times, we're touching on it here again, is that when you make a film, or when you're in this business, you, you make these new families. You make new families right. every time, every movie. And and Alex, you actually, someone actually quoted you to me, which was, every time you start a movie or every time you start a new project, it's like you get, it's like going away to camp, and you end up with family, like new family yeah, members, showmances, the and show, like, yeah, the yeah. whole the whole deal. It's it's a hundred percent true. And people who listen to the show who work making movies and television, they, they, that's something that rings true to them. That there is this time where you, some people you like some people you don't like, and then some people you have your friends for life and their family. And, and that, you know, it's kind of like your regular family, some part family members you don't like, some you do anyway.
2: It is, it's very intense. You know, you're, you're doing this sequence of shows and you're, you're, you're connecting with people. Very extreme ways you have to achieve things. Often, as a director, I often say, often your job is, is getting people to do things they don't want to do, but they'll be happy that you got them to do it afterwards, you know, and that creates really intense relationships. But then the, and then those relationships end and then the show ends. And it's like, it's like having the end of school every six months. I don't know if you remember that feeling when school ended for the year and there were a bunch of people you realized you weren't going to see again, and it was like really sad and depressing. And sometimes, you know, it feels like shows are like that. Like I've I've been through the wars with you people, and now we're all going our separate ways.
0: It literally ends. It, it one day you're working sixteen hours a day next to somebody, yeah. and the next day you're not. It's very, yeah. It, it's very <laughs> like chop. It's a very, it's a big yeah. chop.
2: And that just creates a very specific type of very kind of heightened relationship which i think actually works for making films because you know you're, you're doing this thing you're artificially for three minutes you're getting people to to step up their emotions in this way that you know people are going to watch it and, and connect with it and um, and that works within the environment of making a film but it's, it's a strange way to live a life or not
1: <laughs> I, a lot of people will hear like their early chapters of their life yeah. is like the straight job you know the yeah. gig or, or even something as like dramatic as like, yeah, I went to law school and I hated it. And so I dropped, you know, my job and you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's yeah. just, it's, it's a calling. It's not so much a life style. It's, it's a calling, you know, it's a, it's like, you know, at a certain point you can't really do anything else. So just got to figure right. out how to make it work.
2: Right. I think you've got to love it. And because only if you love it, will you be able to endure? Only if it's that calling that goes to your heart, will you be able to endure what comes, you know, and that kind of brings us to my let's get onto my greenlit experience. Cause that was my first feature, which was a film called donkey punch, but that came right at probably one of the lowest points in my life where I was probably closest to giving all of this up.
0: (laughs) Um, when you hear stories of people, common thread. Common thread <laughs> yeah.
1: I was just watching. Um, I don't know if you guys are. Well, I know Ryan is. He has a visual effects background, but I was watching the ILM Industrial Light and Magic doc on Disney Plus, which is great yeah. if you're a nerd. Like, it really goes deep into like, here's the model that we stole the parts from to make that. You know, like that level of detail. And one of the main guys, the like. I want to say like Phil Tippett, like, yeah, I think it was Phil Tippett. One of the huge, like captains of that made that whole team work. And he was like, yeah, you know, I was kind of bumbling around. I'd made a film myself, but I didn't have enough money to finish it. And so I was just going to like go back to school or whatever. And this guy called and he's like, meet me in Van Nuys. We're starting this show and it's called Star Wars, whatever. I mean, just he had lost all hope. Like fuck yeah, I'm not I'm not worthy. Yeah, John John, uh,
0: there's uh, I think if uh, that doc is fascinating. Uh, by the way, Vice did one that's not approved. That's actually really good too. Ooh, yeah. I will say this:
1: it is funny. You mean where they mentioned Marsha Lucas, and it's not just this. Like, she is interviewed, in and she's interviewed <laughs> very heavily in it. She was Lucas's wife. Yeah. And Some say she rescued the film in the editing and won an Oscar for it. She was an editor and made sense of like a big fat mess of the film.
2: What I love about, you know, just the the lesson from that film that I love is that it's a film that everyone said was never going to work. Right. And, you know, part of one of the frustrations of working in this industry is the amount of people you go in with, you've got this genius idea or whatever, and they're like, it's not going to work. And you're like, yeah. no, 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 you don't get it. You don't get it. Wait, you, wait, you fools.
1: hear me out. Yeah. <laughs>
2: but you know, Star Wars is that film. Everyone said it wasn't going to work. It had great reasons why it wasn't going to work. And if you saw the first test screenings of it, it by all the accounts sounds like it was just a dreadful sub B movie thing. And then it became the most successful film in history. And George Lucas was freaking right. And he may have been saved by a bunch of people along the way, but no one can take away the fact that core concept, he did it. He persisted with it and, this thing everyone said was never going to work and broke all the rules is now the thing everyone's saying, you've got to do that because it, you know.
1: Yeah, that's the new industry standard. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, no, no. Don't, I mean, don't misunderstand. I'm a huge fan and I, I, we just, we we enjoy some good showbiz gossip here. And one of the things that they don't talk about is, you know, they got this huge divorce. So he just never mentioned her again. Huh. You know, he, he's really,
0: yeah, he, he's truthfully, though. You know, I think when they tell the story, it makes it sound like he's spiteful or whatever, and I'm sure he is its really sounds like he is, but she truly broke his heart like he <clears throat> like i I hate to say it, whether she meant to or not. I think he thinks she cheated on him, whatever. I, we don't need to get into that oh rigor. I don't even know all oh that. yeah, there was know, a guy who worked at the too. house uh um anyway she he he, he was truly. In fact, in that series of documentaries by Vice, there's a part where they're interviewing the so his line producer and the guy who first came on, who really almost just fucked everything up. They brought in a new guy at the end of Star Wars and in, in Empire, and then he subsequently did Jedi too. But he said in the inter- in an interview, he basically said he still thinks to this day he thought until. Of course, he got Lucas got remarried. He thought that he was waiting for her to come back. In that, yeah, wow, yeah. I think she just really broke his heart. Like, just wow. really destroyed him. And and, he, and there's no mention of her uh, from him ever. Mm-hmm. It's it's yeah. it is that it's that really bad. It's really bad. Well, and she yeah. cried. She actually in the interview. At the very end of the last episode, she actually cries. She's like, "He's going to die. I or he are going to die, and we will never have reconciliation over this." And I know that, and it it kills me. That's so sad. Yeah, it's really fucking. It's really sad. And and to Vice's credit, as polished and as awesome as the Disney one is, and it is an excellent show. I highly recommend it. The one by Vice is. There's a lot, clearly, they left a lot of stuff out because Lucas yeah, was just like, no. it was, well,
1: it, it, it just yeah. feels more, you know, like anything Disney. It is like controlled within an, an inch of its life, and there'll be no great uh, disclosures. Who was you know? the
0: lead SFX guy who ended up making? extra? Yeah, so that whole relationship went south. Like, they, but they kind of talked about it. They do, but not as much as they talk about like Dykstra like a holy war. Yeah, Dijkstra basically was like, Oh, all this equipment, I'm gonna go ahead and use that to make other movies. And Lucas was like, What the hell are you doing? Like, yeah, that's my yeah, you, stuff.
1: you spent all your money to make the Dykstra flex is what they called that camera. And then he just took it and made like Battlestar Galactica.
0: Yo, yeah, oh, that was the deal was that he went and made Battlestar Galactica and they were the, the folks over at, uh, was it Warner universal who did Battlestar? They were pissed. Uh, they, they, universal. they got sued. Fox sued them because they were like, Hey, this is, this is star Wars folks. And they're like, right. Yeah, it was a big, anyway. big bloody battle. Anyway. anyway. I, I digress. So, to, <laughs> Ollie, before we get into... before Oh, Holly's on, oh, oh hi, Ollie's on this? the show. Who's there? Ollie's on who's the there? show.
1: Is that you, God? It's me, Margaret. <laughs>
0: hey, Ollie, so before you jump into Donkey Punch, you were in a film that won the Oscar. Your mom had said, no more of this. You go to school. Did you maintain your love of film? Did you go to film school? Did you... Where did you go from there? How did you maintain or get back into? Yeah, how did
1: you jump from like a film, an interest in film, to actually directing your own feature?
2: Growing up, you know, throughout my teenage years, I, I was obsessed by film. Growing up in the UK, you know, they would have these like the there was a strand called Cinema Drum, These late night Saturday night, I'd be in quite often, and there would be these, they'd show a cult movie every Saturday night, introduced by the actor by the director, Alex Cox. So I was just hoovering up all this, you know, Sam Fuller movies, and uh, you know, um, the Terminator and Polanski and all this super, super cool stuff. And again, it was just, it was like real life, but even better. And it made you think and it made you dream. And then I was a pretty academic kid. I, I was at my school, I was a a scholarship student. History was my subject. And I went to university and I was going to become a historian. I still to this day adore, adore history. I was really serious about it. I was about to do a PhD in history, but I loved film. I made short films, you know, like so many of us, you know, these little homemade home movies at that time on, on VHS and on Super 8. And I applied to a bunch of film schools. And I also applied for a a thing called a Fulbright scholarship which is like the British version or a Rhodes scholarship which I got and that actually I got a call saying do you want to go to NYU film school and study film the, the MFA program there with the Fulbright so I dropped the PhD and I went over to NYU and I studied film at the Tisch school which was um was mind-blowing because all my favorite filmmakers, Spike Lee, Scorsese, Woody Allen, Oliver Stone, all those people, they'd all gone to that school. And it was kind of like entering this sort of nirvana, you know? And it was really, really interesting. And it was kind of an early lesson in filmmaking because when I got there, they sat us all down in the, uh, in the room and they gave us the kind of top gun speech thousands of students apply, you're the hundred who made it through and all that kind of stuff. You know, you're the best of the best stuff. And at the end of the first semester, I think five students dropped out. They just couldn't take it. They found it too hard, too punishing. And I'll never forget one of our teachers at the time going, one of the students was complaining, going, I'm so tired all the time. And the teacher was like, if you want to sleep, don't make film.
0: Right. A hundred. <laughs> right? There couldn't be a truer statement there. <laughs>
2: it was like, you know, if you want to do this, it isn't going to be easy. So you have to really want to
0: do this. Thank you again for joining us on how I got greenlit. We really appreciate you coming along for the ride, but before we go any further, I'd like to get a little serious with you all for a second. I know you've got plenty on your plate to think about these days, but something that affects all of us is the fact that mother nature is taking a beating these days. Wildfires, water shortages, and just plain weird weather are an unfortunate fact of life these days. The truth is it's only going to get worse over the next few decades. So you might ask yourself, what can we do? One thing we do is get educated. Next chapter Podcast and the Clio Institute have teamed up on a podcast called House on Fire co-hosted by Katrina Irwin, a 24-year-old climate activist, and Caroline Lewis, the founder of the Clio Institute. House on Fire is a youth-centered podcast that takes its name from Greta Thunberg's famous speech. It's youth-focused because, let's face it, us adults are leaving a pretty huge mess to clean up for the next generation. Each episode invites scientists, activists, artists, and more to have important conversations about this complex crisis. And the topics they cover could help you make decisions about how you might want to vote or spend your hard-earned money in the ways that leave behind a better world for those to come. So listen to House on Fire wherever you get your pods to stay informed and involved, or go to the Clio Institute.org to learn more. Now, let's get back to how I got greenlit. Were you in at university in England before you came over to Tish?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I did my undergraduate.
0: Had you been to the states before?
2: I've been to the states, yeah. My 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 mom actually was was born in America. What year
0: did you start going to NYU? I was there
2: 93 to 98.
0: Okay, so you're dropped off in New York City in the early 90s. I mean, that's yeah. got that's got to be, I mean, Alex and I have talked about it before that's got to be a little bit mind-blowing a bit. It
2: was totally mind-blowing. it was fucking uh, it was that period where new york was still like old school new york alphabet city was still alphabet city you know it wasn't you know luxury condos and um going to parties like allen ginsburg you know floating around and i was a journalist as well so i was doing a lot of journalism at the time and i was the uh Contributing editor for an underground rave magazine. Oh and my just, God, talk,
0: yeah. do tell, talk more, talk more about that.
2: Yeah. You know, I just, I got there and one of the great things about New York is you, you hustle, right? Like that's like a fish being in the water, like everyone's hustling. And so I just got there and I'd done i I'd run a student, an independent student paper at university and I was like, I'm just going to contact a load of people And tell them I'm a journalist, you know, from top to bottom. And I ended up hooking with this magazine called Project X, which was this, it was of the moment. It was an underground rave magazine. It was all connected with all those club kids like Michael Alec and all, if you know about all of that scene.
1: We do, yeah. We didn't know each other, but we were there around the same time. Right. I was Tony's roommate, just at, parenthetically. So we were just talking to, do you know Sophia Sundervan, the Dutch producer? No, no. So she also, she was she was undergrad. She was like a freshman when, yeah. when I was a junior undergrad and you were ahead of us, you were grad. So she made Party Monster, right? What? And so we were talking about Michael Alley. I, I actually met Michael Alley because we were, Tony and me had friends that were like club kids, like genuine club kids, you know, like on the list and like pseudo DJs and whatever. And we'd go, yeah, we'd go to the tunnel and like yeah. limelight and the yeah. building. And, you know, yeah. Club USA, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. All of that shit. And it was like a time and place and kind of Michael Alex's death was like the death of, for me at least, it was sort of the death of that scene.
2: Yeah. You know? But it was a scene, right? And it was a scene oh, God, anchored yeah. in a time and place that that's gone now. But what an extraordinary yeah. time and place to have been part of.
1: Yeah, it was still dangerous. What What kind of
0: articles do you write for Project X? Like, what is the what is the Yeah, do you have oh,
2: some of your God. archive?
1: Can you read us a passage?
2: I was their star interviewer. I was there. I was the... Uh,
1: oh, my God. This is just getting better. <laughs> so it's like nom, 3 a.m. and you have the, a handheld recorder. Nom, nom, like, nom, 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 I was nom, like, nom, 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 like
2: nom. the Malcolm Gladwell.
1: Of, oh, my God. This is so good. Right.
2: So, so, so nice. I, I was interviewing like D-Light, who at the time were... Yeah. Shut oh, up.
1: Groove, Groove was once in their house. Yeah. And, oh, uh, are
2: you shitting me? Mila Jovovich. And, yes. Uh, that
1: was... Yes.
2: And yeah, it was it was pretty extraordinary. Oh my God, Tracy Lords, I did a cover. yes. Oh Lourdes my God,
1: was, oh, so that was good. like the snapshot, and, of and, that, yeah. and
2: that was kind of weird and awkward because uh, she was trying to. It was a, a brief moment. She where was trying she to go mainstream. Acting, she was going acting. Exactly, she had an acting yeah. career. She was in a HBO adaptation of the Stephen King book, The Stand. You know, this was before. This was when TV was not what it was now. And she was only interested, she had like some supporting role and that's all she wanted to talk about. And of course, all anyone was interested about was her the porn. porn background and, porn. Uh, and she did not want to talk about it. Uh, that was not the most successful interview I ever did. And is this at three
0: in the morning coming off of like, or four in the morning coming off? No, this was,
2: this was a, a full business dinner at the Mark Hotel. That's, that's where Project X was at at that moment.
0: Wow, so a sit-down dinner, and you're like, so yeah. let's talk about club. Let's, let's talk about the club kid scene, and she's like, no, no, no. no exactly. Let's let's talk about the stand on HBO. Let's talk
1: about story. yeah, you're feeling my pain, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the editor's like, Direct I don't want to hear shit about her acting attempts. I want dirt. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I hope there are people out there who remember picking up the Zine Project X. I, I, I just, you know, my, I will my, be
2: so impressed if you get one of those legendary emails from someone like.
0: i I'm, I'm. It's going straight to you. I'm connecting. <laughs> you.
1: I will not divert it to
0: my only inbox.
1: <laughs> but that's a lost another another relic of that of gone that time dust. Like, yes, yeah. the you know, like the you know, interview magazine and like timeout and just yeah. all those. Every, like I wrote
2: I, I for interview magazine yeah. as well. I had a few pieces in
1: there. Yeah. There, uh, there was one called
0: Nouveau. Like they all, I think there was a time yeah. where all of those, all of these magazines kind of existed. You know, LA weekly was one of those mm-hmm. back in the, right. back in the day. Really? Yep. It was like, right. all, yeah, all sure. gone.
2: Paper magazine.
0: Yeah. Right. Paper, yeah. paper. Yeah. Oh yeah. Paper. Yeah.
2: Uh, It was it was you know because it was this halcyon era. Sorry, I sound like a granddad now. No, pre-social media. You know, we were getting our (laughs) news from these glossy, these weird, you know, these glossy edifices with glossy photos. Yeah, it was just uh, a different time.
1: What was the guy's name at uh, the Voice? Michael Musto. He would always like yeah. That was just that era, man. New York, downtown New it. York. Yeah, of course you did. You were at the same parties. You were at the, interviewing the same people. Yeah, it was a small
2: And he community. would do this thing. This was, again, sort of, this sounds naive in the universe of Twitter, but do you remember every year he'd do these famous blind columns where he would mm-hmm. write yes. all this salacious shit like yeah. about these nameless people, like a certain actor. You yeah. know, has got five gay lovers while in fact they're pretending to be married to be one of the most famous supermodels in the world. And everyone would <laughs> be feverish, like, who is it, who is it, who is it? <laughs> um, and right. at the time, that was mind-blowing.
1: Now it's everywhere. The culture yeah. is that. Yeah. yeah. Or like, uh, remember Patrick McMullen would always be like taking pictures. I mean, it, it was a scene. It, it was, was like Michael... Michael Allen was, or uh, Michael Alec was the DJ and Michael yeah. Musto was the gay columnist that, you know, like it was yeah. just like, it was almost the, and
2: it was a good looking, it was a scene with a lot of pomp and bombast that like these people had confidence. Yes. Oh,
1: hugely. I mean, they were
2: dressing like they were in Versailles or something. It was, you know, there was a lot of glitz.
1: There was a verse. Yeah. And, and it was the one I remember I moved to the village and I, you know, like literally the maybe the second week we were there was the Halloween parade. And it's just like, oh, so I guess gay people don't give a fuck here. Like they're just, they're going to live their lives. And now it's sort of amplified out to the culture, which is a good thing. But it just was a, it was a, it was a little island and people didn't give a shit about outside New York. Do you remember that? You
2: were asking about, um, they didn't, you were asking about like coming from Britain and landing in New York. And I remember actually one of the moments where I had that feeling. Was I went to the Tunnel Club, like within my first weeks in New York, and it was one of Michael Alex nights, and it was packed full of people. And I don't know if you remember this. They had this thing called the Money Cage, where they put someone naked in a, a perspex sphere that they suspended over the dance floor, and they're, they're pumping dance music, and they blew dollar bills into this perspect cage. And that person had no clothes on. And they could only take all the dollar bills that they could hold in their hands in any other orifices. And they're suspended above a dance floor with strobes going, music pumping, about a thousand people. And I remember staring at this aghast, my mind being blown like this kid from London. And I was like, holy fucking shit, I'm in New York. Right? <laughs> and, and,
0: yeah. and that was his green moment, everybody. Or or yeah, or even like <laughs>
2: Then I was like, I gotta get that magazine project next. I need to.
1: <laughs> Wait, I I gotta get I gotta get in that money cage. Where's the Where's the line? He's got the sign up sheet? Film, I and got in. a film
0: to make. I need some dollars, y'all. Stuff it in as many or five.
2: But yeah, just as as awesome as it is to discuss the rave scene, just to go back to film. <laughs> i No. The other great thing about being in New York in the '90s was. The indie scene, the indie film scene and the Mm -hmm. energy that was coursing through that city. You know, from the beginning through the, you know, starting off with the nuclear cinema and all that stuff at the beginning and and people like John Sales going through, uh, going through to kids in the middle of that that decade.
1: Right. You know, and ending up with
2: with you know indie film becoming kind of mainstream at the end of that decade. That was an incredible thing, you know, to be there and part of that and seeing.
1: A time, a time that will never be repeated. The the New York Film Festival down there that was a big part yeah. of it. I remember Clerks and like Brothers McMullen, right? And uh,
0: VH it was VH. Like Laws
1: of Gravity, if anybody remembers that one.
2: Yo, oh my God, I love that movie. As a camera with that legendary film.
1: Yeah, that was like the hot like uh, oh they shot it all handheld, but yeah. they got this incredible DP. Blah blah blah, and it was the debut of uh, Redfoot Ryan the guy from uh, Usual Suspects, it was a heady time. It was a heady very- time.
2: And, you know, I was in in my class. There, was some, there were some people there like Morgan Freeman and uh, Malcolm Lee, you know, people who, like, made films as their graduate films, the films that went to Sundance, you know, uh, yeah. films that won the documentary prize. And, and I actually, I ended up, because I was out there on this Fulbright scholarship, and you have to return to your home country after you fulfilled that. So I I ended up going back very reluctantly going back to Britain because I was, you know, I was addicted to being in New York. It was incredible. And you know, and I started the scene was different in the UK. At that time, music videos and commercials were was where a lot of creative energy was in the UK. We didn't have quite the same indie scene. Nowhere I think has the indie scene that New York has, particularly not in the nineties. I really missed it and I started then doing music videos and commercials and and learning my trade that way. Uh, But I always had this kind of passion to to make a New York indie film.
0: But by the way, like you have artists like George Michael that made these huge, like operatic music videos, just amazing, you know, because when I first got to L.A., I worked in a lot of music videos and just it was still the time where guys, you know, artists or record companies, whatever we're spending millions of dollars on music videos because it was a way to get your music out there. It was another yeah. channel of distribution. It was mm-hmm. building an audience,
1: and that was a gig. I mean, oh. some huge production companies oh popped God. up, huge and like game. it was R- a whole Rsa, RSA right? made music yeah. videos. RSA, yeah, man. Fincher, all those guys came exactly, out of that. Exactly, 100%. Yeah.
0: And, and it was great because some of the music, vi- I mean, there were pieces of art in themselves. Madonna. Yeah, huge music they went videos. from
1: like very rough, kind of primitive, like almost innocent, goofy home movies to just like yeah. feature cinema. film,
2: like really yeah, yeah. big pieces. Yeah, and pushing the boundary you know, technologically, you know. Oh, absolutely. Some of those Fincher videos and Apex Twin videos, you know, they then informed sci-fi films and yeah. horror films you know that technology because a studio wouldn't let you do that you know it was too weird and too crazy but you know a music video would and there was enough money to do it properly uh, uh you know my first music video was a guy it was for this band gomez
1: it was a guy upside. oh down, i love so gomez yeah Don't to know. Gomez is a great band. Yeah. Uh, how did, and how did you deal with the blood flow issues of hanging? It was tough.
2: On? I remember we, we, we hired a professional, a circus trained acrobat. Yeah. Uh, who was amazing, but you know, there was a moment he was hung upside. down. <laughs> you know, we did it old school. We didn't do it greens. We had one green screen shot that blew half our budget. The rest of it was a guy hanging from a mobile swing set. We tra- traveled around West London. And I remember at one point I was like in deep conversation with my DP and about, about something, and this guy was hanging upside down for like three minutes. And he was like, get a fucking move on. <laughs> my head's about to explode. <laughs> <laughs> wow.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, but that's the thing. If anyone learns anything from my Greenlit episode, it's do not hang on someone upside down for more than one minute.
1: Exactly. You might kill that. I wanna yeah. uh, uh,
2: I wanna
0: see I wanna see this music video from Gomez now.
1: So you're you're in that world and but you're always focused on features. Like you're always like, I'm gonna be yeah. Spike Lee. I'm gonna be Martin Scorsese, writer director. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So was this funded independently? Did you did you raise money yourself? Is it you know, like friends and family? Was it a, a company? Wait, How wait, wait. Are
0: we talking are we talking about Donkey Punch so, at this
1: one? Donkey Punch, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So
2: so so I was I was doing music videos and commercials with, with a big, a big company in London that was called uh, Godman doesn't exist anymore. And they did actually those George Michael videos that they did those amongst many others, and it was incredible. But like you've identified, you know, you've got that thing. You've you, going back to the start of our conversation that burning urge, you know, that Scorsese film that blew, blew your mind. I want to be able to do that. So. I did a thing which uh which I would warn people about doing. At a certain point a producer said to me, Hey, you know, you've always wanted to do films, come and write a script for me. Which I did, and and I was moderately successful writing scripts, as in, you know, I, I got a bunch of repeat business and I got paid, but never sort of crossing through to that sort of that, you know, that mega level. But I spent like three or four years writing things that didn't get produced. Some of them did right at the end of my writing experience. At the same time, I'd stopped doing music videos and commercials. And and I just warned people about, in this business, it's really important to be engaged, always be engaged with people. And one of the great things about Directing or not even directing, ADing, running, assistant directing on a set is you're engaged with people and you're making connections. And if you, you know, and if you're a decent person and you're and you're cool, you'll make some really really good connections that, that are going to pay off. And and do not cut yourself off from that. And, and and writing, as as we know, can be a very solitary process. You can get very cut off. And I found after like three or four years, I woke up and I was like. Jesus, you know, I wanna, I wanna shoot something. And I've sort of entered this bubble. I need to get back out of the bubble. Mm. And um and, and I found getting out of the bubble, you know, I, I went back to a bunch of, you know, music video commercials places. And they're like, look, dude, you know, you haven't worked for too long. We can't help you here. And it was quite bracing. And that was the moment I was alluding to earlier, where I was like, maybe I've run myself into a dead end here. Maybe I need to look at a different profession, maybe I need to go back to being a, a journalist, you know. Pick up that Mm -hmm. career as a historian, become an academic historian. And it was at that point that um, I I had a very good friend uh, who'd been on holiday in the south of France over the new year when the south of France is absolutely dead. It's cold, no one's there. He's in the marina there and he noticed all these luxury yachts in the marina being tended by these really young kids. No owners, all the owners have gone off to the Caribbean and other places For their holidays. And you've got these kids who are in sole command of, you know, sort of $50 million yachts. And he was like, Do you think there's a story here? And I was like, I think there's a story here. And he was like, What story do you think that is? And I was like, Well, it's got to be a thriller, right? I mean, you've got to get a bunch of people onto a yacht and get them out into the middle of nowhere. And that's a thriller. You know, it's like being on some incredible drug. We just, Within a matter of hours, we put a story together, and it so happened. My agent was like, "You know, I don't know what to suggest to you, Ollie. Uh, go and meet this guy. He's with a company called Warp. They've just started up a new wing to make low-budget horror films. Go and meet him and uh, see what you can do." And I went in, and it was a producer called Robin Gutch, and he was like, "We're just beginning a thing. We're making films for under a million pounds. They've got to be tight. We're Warp. We're edgy. Warp." You know, they're a music label. They do Aphex Twin, Broadcast, and and Flying Lotus and people like that. They've got a really cool, edgy persona. They'd made a film uh, called Dead Man's Shoes, which was a kind of a gritty retelling of the, the sort of vengeance genre. And I just pitched him this idea out of the blue. And he was like, that's exactly the sort of film we want to be making. How soon can you get me a script? I said, we can get you the script in a week. And I went back to Dave and I was like, right, Get our fucking skates on. We're going to write a script in a week. <laughs> and, uh, and then we were shooting a film in nine months' time.
0: <laughs> it nice. Doesn't always happen that way, kids.
2: <laughs> no. But, you know, the, I guess part of the lesson is it took four years of, you know, kicking your heels and skidding your tires to get to that point.
1: Right. Yeah. And uh, that's another classic lesson that we're learning, which is preparation plus opportunity.
2: Right. right. Yeah,
1: Like you, you were ready for that person to be like, that's exactly what we want, but we need it right this second. Not like, oh, good. Give me six months. Like it's gone.
2: No, you need to. Exactly. One of the, going back to the NY, the New York thing. one of the big lessons, I'll never forget this. I learned in in New York that speaks to that is now I was trying to, you know, I was working as a journalist. I was trying to get gigs. I really wanted a gig at details magazine. That was like the hot magazine at the time. (laughs) And through various people, I got an in to the deputy editor there, you know, I called this guy again and again and again, leaving messages, hey, you know, I'm a features writer, I want to write to you. And then suddenly out of the blue, I was at home one day and I got a call from this fucking guy out of the blue. And he's like, okay, I hear you want to speak to me, pitch me three ideas. And I froze, I choked. <laughs> and I came up, I ummed and I ahed. I came up with one line idea. he was like, okay, I'll call you back. I never heard from him again. And the lesson I learned is you get one shot at this yes. if you, you, and you don't know when the shot's going to happen. It's going to happen out of the blue. It's not good enough to say I wasn't prepared. And, and I guess that was one of the reasons why I responded like I did with before. It's just like, just even if you're bullshitting, front it, just fucking nail the deal because you know, you're not going to get it again.
1: Right. Okay. So take us through it because by the way, everything I've ever heard or read is do not shoot on water.
0: <laughs> and Ali, have you, you've you done that twice, right? Was the other one? I, I, one?
2: I always should end up shooting in water. The, the thing I did for Tony, the big set piece yeah, was what, underwater.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: I, I did a TV show called Startup, which had a bunch of boat stuff in it. And the, the showrunner of that, after a couple of days, was like, and I was like, hey, guys, this is how you shoot on a boat. Uh, and they were like, you know what? Will you just shoot all the boat stuff, please? Because you <laughs>
1: don't tell us, just do it. Um,
2: So yeah, so part of our, my, you know, so we walked in, Donkey Punch on paper was like, it's a nice tight story. It's seven kids on a boat. It all happens in one night. You know, this is a low budget movie. And no one had actually thought about the fact you're shooting on water, which does not make it low budget. And then we started to put it together and it's like set on a luxury Anyone heard of a donkey punch? Here's a wicked scary weekend together. Cheers. Right, what's the one drink? Champagne. Champagne. To nice to meet you. Game on.
0: What now, ladies?
2: You're welcome to come back to the yacht and have a drink with us. You've got a yacht. <laughs> you This is what it's all about. This guy's incredible. Anyone heard of a donkey punch? Tell us! It's proper hardcore. I am hardcore. Oh, it makes your chest go cold. Why don't we take this downstairs? I'll take it. So the story of Donkey Punch is... These British girls, they go down to Mallorca in Spain, which is where a lot of Brits go to party. It's kind of like Ibiza or something. And they're partying. They're from the north. They're sort of working class girls and they meet these guys, these really good looking, charming guys at the bar. And these guys are all working as crew members on a luxury yacht. And they're quite posh guys. And the owner has left Mallorca and they've got the yacht to themselves. So they take these girls back to the yacht, everyone parties. They say, hey, let's take the yacht out to sea. They go out. They have this incredible time. And then something really horrible happens and goes wrong and someone dies. And suddenly everyone's left with this thing of like, we could either dispose of the body and pretend like nothing ever happened and they fell in the sea or we go back and tell people what happened and our careers and our reputations are destroyed forever. So this being a thriller, obviously, they take the former decision and then mistrust sows amongst them and they all end up fighting each other and destroying each other. It's kind of, it's like a horror film, but the beast isn't from without, the beast is from within. So it's all on this boat. and We're like, it's on a boat. It all takes place in one night. You know, how difficult is that? And then we have to... (laughs) There's a, it's got to be a luxury boat, you know, that's really expensive.
0: I would laugh with you, Ali, but I just am getting, I'm getting like sweat, sweat flashbacks of like, how difficult is that? And I'm like, Oh, it's a low, it's a low budget film shot on a super yacht in the middle of the ocean. Mm. <laughs> Something tells me <laughs> <laughs> some of that is true and some of that is not true at all. Anyway, sorry.
2: I never thought I'd be spending so much time with tide charts. <laughs> <laughs>
0: For those of you playing at home, that's how the tide works, if in case and, you don't I, know. I, I play with tide pods. Yeah, t- similar. Tasty.
2: And just so you know, if you have your boat and it's not moored or it's moored in the wrong position, and the tide's coming from the wrong way, then you will sink the boat, as we were told one night at three in the morning when that happened. When the boat was sinking? (laughs) It was about to sink, and the skipper started.
1: (laughs) Oh, my God.
2: You know, the other interesting thing about boats that people who haven't filmed will be sort of shocked by is that as soon as you remove the boat from the shore, even if it's only five feet from the shore, everything takes three times longer
0: yeah
2: if you can't step on and off that boat mm-hmm. if communication people having to do a bathroom break, people having to transfer equipment on the boat, everything takes three times longer yeah so this is uh, this
0: was your first film
2: this is my first film, so
0: you're like i'm gonna do i'm gonna do it I'm gonna do something easy I'm gonna just I'm one location yeah, and then well,
2: well, it gets kind of 3D like because there's the boat, which is, you've just been saying isn't easy. Then on top of that, it's called Donkey Punch, which is a, a violent sex act, which, and if the film says anything, it says this. It's one of these things where people goof around and they get drunk and they come up with more and more obscene, you know, strawberry shortcakes and things like that. But no one does it. You know, it's like a you know, it's like a drinking thing. You, you do it in order to shock and amuse people. Right. And in our film, someone actually does it. And if there's any lesson in the film, it's do not fucking do this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was like, is this a clever title? Is this a clever title or does this actually happen in the movie? Because I was like... It
2: actually happens. And the centerpiece of the film is these kids all, they all have sex in this thing. There's all this sort of what now we would call toxic masculinity is bound up in the relationships between these boys and the girls. And one of the boys tries this thing doing sex because he's being egged on by this other boy who's bullying him. And it goes horribly wrong. That is, you know, a very controversial thing to shoot. So on top of the fact that we're shooting on the boat, we were also shooting a very explicit sex scene in which this very dark thing happens. This was in the days before intimacy coordinators and all of that stuff. Yes. Mm. So we had this kind of, in all senses of the word, this sort of very hot script that, that a lot of people were talking about. Some people thought it was great. Other people were quite shocked by it. And we shot the film in South Africa. And when we got to Cape Town, the Cape Town Film Board actually convened a meeting with our producers in South Africa to discuss whether they should be making this film wow so
1: <laughs> now apartheid that's fine but guys there's limits
0: secondary but were you yeah. were you going to call it donkey punch from the beginning was it like locked in were you going to fight for that name or was that a shock and all type situation where you, you weren't necessarily tied to it or I I think I had heard of it before, but it wasn't until that we, I was doing kind of the pre-interview stuff that we do that I realized that it it was a real, the real title, the real movie. And I just didn't know if that was something that you, was that the title that you originally gave the script?
2: That's a really great question. It it was the title we gave the script.
0: You had to know know the controversy. You had to know what, even then you had to
1: know.
2: So after we had shot the film, when we were editing, I actually wanted to change the title for, for exactly that reason. You know, it's actually, putting aside what a donkey punch means, it's, it's, got, a, it's got a great ring as a title. It kind of, you know, it, it's strange and it's hard, and, but it does invite a lot of controversy. Now, we had a lot of very big discussions, me, the producers, my co-writer, and the decision ultimately came to keep the title. And part of the thinking was it was just such a powerful title people would never forget it. Now, that cuts both ways. Right. And all I'll say is this, is uh, after the film was, in the film actually got a, for a small indie film, it got a big release in the UK. It was released on 250 screens, which for the UK is, is big. And afterwards, and there was a big meat publicity campaign. And I remember saying to our distributor afterwards, hey, I never saw any posters on the London Underground for this you know why is that and they were like what's the title you, you can't advertise a film with a, with a sexually explicit title on the Underground and I was like it would have been really good to have known that <laughs> before we would have known we signed off on the title of this film
1: Thank you for joining us for part one of our interview with Ollie Blackburn. Join us next week when we continue the conversation about his career. Thanks for listening. And join us on Gmail at howigotgreenlit at Gmail. Let us know what you think. Or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at howigotgreenlit. Thanks for listening.